Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is me, Chris, and Stu in the in the studio. Oh, the studio. Yeah, I uh, get that a lot. Do you? Well, no, not really. Right. Uh, yes. Well, we are here. Um, still, just just the two of us at the moment. Uh, and me, I am going. Um, I'm following up part two of my story on unconventional natural gas, um, coal seam gas. It is in Australia. Last week we talked about fracking in the United States and the the impact thereof. Uh, yeah, this week I'm just going to be looking at what the situation is here in the land down under and what the environmental concerns are and what the the research is is showing us. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Stu, what have you got for us? Well, in you know. In keeping with uh, people's uh, attitudes to their health seems to be a big thing. People want to live for a long time or as long as they possibly can, it seems. And I'm going to look at, you know, what what does your attitude do to your health outlook? Does it mean that you, do happier people live longer or do they, you know, do pessimists live longer because they're expecting the worst? Uh, I'm going to talk about that and what, what science has found about your attitude and how it affects your longevity Great. I've got a good feeling about this. On with the show. Yes, we are here on Lost in Science. And uh, last week, uh, we had a bit of, did a bit of story about um, gas extraction, unconventional gas, it's called, which is where they're extracting gas from rock and um, deposits, I suppose. It's, it's shale in America is what they get it from. Um, basically, basically those hard to reach places. Yeah, yeah. So they they get it from from shale deposits in America, and they use fracking there, and that's found to have contaminated groundwater. They, the chemicals of from fracking and, and the gas released, uh, and that was most likely seen due to wells, the actual gas wells not being encased. They're supposed to have a concrete and steel casing around them, and when that is not done correctly, is when you get leakage. But how does this apply to Australia, I guess? Because we care probably more about Australia and what's going on here, especially because there is a lot of controversy still ongoing about this kind of gas extraction here in Australia. So I thought I'd have a bit of a look at that and see what the situation is. And of course, as you might expect, it is a bit different. Um, So look, it all comes down to what the kind of gas we have here and the geology of Australia. And it's it's to do with coal, it's to do with the land, it's the vibe of the thing. It's also the water. Uh, in particular, we're looking at the impacts on the area, which is basically the Great Artesian Basin. So this is uh, underground water that um, is this huge kind of mass um, reservoir of underground water underneath Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, part of the Northern Territory. So it's all interconnected, this underground water. It is interconnected. Um, it, is, it is apparently the largest and deepest um, Artesian Basin in the world. It contains about 65 million gigalitres of water. Which is a lot. Um, what that means, uh, apparently, it's over a hundred thousand times Sydney Harbour. So whatever that, you know, if that helps you envision it better. It's it's a lot. It's a lot of water. It's a, it's um, a lot of water. And of course, this covers a lot of a lot of the the dry areas of the continent. And so, is it is it actually fresh water? Is it drinkable water or? 
in places it is. And I guess this is where the the concern is. Is it drinkable or not? And this is why I guess there is concerns about um about so potentially it can be used. Potentially it can be used for other things. It so is, yeah, it is. Irrigate it's crops like, with it, or absolutely, it is the main water supply in a lot of a lot of the dry areas of Australia. Okay. So people drill wells there for drinking water and for irrigation and that sort of thing. So much of this water is in layers of sandstone, which of course is quite a porous rock, mm. um, and that's where you really want to drill to. But there is also there are seams of coal in there as well. And the coal also contains water down. The coal is kind of between 300 and 1,000 metres down. Uh, now, clearly coal has its own sort of economic usage. Um, we have a long and dirty history of coal mining in this country. Um, but, yeah, people are turning to extracting the gas that is trapped within the coal as well. Uh, so I guess the advantage of doing that is you don't have to dig big mines to, to get it out. You just drill lots of little wells around the place. And it also burns cleaner too. It burns cleaner, advantage. yeah. Yeah, it's been sort of um, put forward as the, the bridging fuel, I suppose. Mm. People trying to say, um, I guess people who want to who want to drill mine, um, wells for it, saying that, you know, as um, wind and solar is, is still relatively expensive at the moment, that this is kind of gas is perhaps a lower emission than coal and is kind of the, the next thing forward. Not that so, there seems to be that many gas-fired electrical generation no, sort of well, certainly not in facilities a, around. Certainly not in Australia. Mm. Um, look, it's been a big impact, though, in the United States. Um, shale, uh, gas extraction from shale has been a big thing. It's, it's um, kind of revolutionised their energy economy over there. Okay. So, yeah, people, I guess, are wanting to get that same dollars here in Australia. Uh, now, how much of this series, I suppose, I said there's a lot of wells that they drill down. According to the, the website of the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, that's APPEA, that is the, the peak body where all the, um, the gas miners get together. Um, that is at the end of March 2015, their statement there, they said there were 6,974 coal seam gas wells across the country, 6,736 in Queensland, 238 in New South Wales. So mostly in Queensland. Right. Um, yeah, and the way it works is that uh, there, is, there is water and gas in, the, in amongst the coal. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, you drill a well down, you pump out the water and release the gas. Now, sometimes this requires this, uh, the fracking, the hydraulic fracturing we hear so much about. Um, and there are, there are, as we've seen in, in the United States, there are many different chemicals that are used in fracking, and they can go on to contaminate groundwater. However, um, the APPEA claims that since January 2011, when their looks like their, their reporting started, there have only been 438 fracture stimulations, as they call them. Okay. Which, even if that's underreported, that still implies the incidence of fracking is actually quite low here. Mm. That they're getting extracting a lot of this gas without fracking. So fracking perhaps is not the main concern in yep. Australia. I guess is what we're concluding there. There are other concerns, though. One of the big ones that you particularly get from the, the people who depend on, um, on the, the underground, the groundwater, is just simply that they could deplete the groundwater supplies. Because mm. when you have to pump out the, the water to get the, to get the gas, uh, and the initial estimates about the industry, kind of there was a huge range of estimates where people thought that could actually be used up. There's one, the maximum that people estimated was about 15,000 gigalitres per year, which is about three times the amount that farmers extract um, per year. Wow. 
Um, so that is a huge amount. However, look, where how much is actually being extracted is it's a bit hard to tell. Um, I had a look again at the reports in the APPEA. They have a section in their reports for water production, which only mentions 14 gigalitres in the first three months of this year. So I put it out across a year, that's only about 56 gigalitres for the whole year, mm. which is a lot less than the 1,500 gigalitres. Um, look, so again, you know how accurate these reports are, we cannot say, but it is, sounds a lot less than some of those initial estimates. And if you look across the whole basin, that you know that probably isn't going to be a huge amount. We're probably unlikely to deplete the entire sixty-five million gigalitres by doing this. Does the um, does the basin get replenished in any way? Does it water does. flow back into it? Yeah, I haven't I haven't got the figures in front of me that the rate that it flows back okay. in. But yeah, water comes from from rain and another source. It sort of sinks into the rock. So, but it it's is, it's not it's not. Non-renewable in, in no, that sense. No, no, it is. Okay. But it's, yeah, it's kind of a very, very slow-flowing yeah. thing. Um, I guess the thing is that we're unlikely – it is vast, this mm. this Great Artesian Basin. Um, so we are unlikely to deplete it by drilling these, these wells and pumping out the water. Overall, however, in locally you can actually reduce the levels of groundwater in a particular area, and this is something that can affect individual farmers. Mm-hmm. And so there still is a concern, even though you, can, they, you know, they, they kind of look at the estimates across the whole industry and say, well, look, the impact is going to be small. On a local level, it actually can be quite significant, and there are usually mechanisms in the, in the legislation in place that the companies have to compensate farmers if they um, reduce their groundwater by too much. So that is a known, that is a known factor. But there is another kind of – it gets you coming and going, this as well. Um, the biggest environmental impact that's seen so far, however, is is kind of the water actually going back into the ground. And this is um, from the, the wastewater that they extract when they, they pull it out and what they do with that. Now, they're supposed to treat the, the wastewater and then are allowed to release it into back into the environment Um there is some concern about that, that some things may not be removed in this treated wastewater. But even so, we've been a few incidences of spills of their, their wastewater that they've extracted. Um, and this wastewater contains all kinds of, of things like there's a lot of aromatic hydrocarbons, there's heavy metals, uh, things like you know arsenic, lead, even uranium. Um, there was a leak of about 10,000 litres in the Pillager Forest in northern New South Wales in 2011, and the gas company Santos was fined $52,500 for that leak. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound very much, does it? No, it doesn't. Well, hang on, hold on to that. There was another leak in 2014 um, that this one was actually shown to have contaminated groundwater. It's actually seeped in, back into the groundwater. This right. is like a, a pond on the surface, mm-hmm. like a storage pond on the surface, uh, leaked into, into groundwater, and it led to uranium levels 20 times that is considered safe for drinking water. And for that one, they were fined a whopping $1,500. Wow. Yeah. That doesn't seem you know, um, commensurate with the... Uh with the breach, to it, me. It doesn't. It doesn't. And this is the thing. I mean, you know, the, plenty of studies have looked at how the, this, you know, the drilling is done and shown that it can be done safely. And, of course, the industry claims they're doing it safely, but the worry is, you know, how often is it not safe? And particularly when the penalties are so low, mm. really, what's to make them worry about doing it properly? You know, they say they're going to do it properly and they'll, they'll go on about how safe their practices are and how you know, they're going to do it this way. But... Really, if they're only going to get fined fifteen hundred dollars for leaking uranium into the groundwater, then um, yeah, you do have to wonder. A little yeah, bit. It, does, it doesn't seem like it's yeah. much of a deterrent. And once they've once they've treated, of course, then they've got to deal with um, the waste that's left over. Um, apparently, huge amounts of salt is is um, it comes out much more salt than is sort of currently in the in the environment. And they had um, there have you talked about plans to try and um, turn it into sodium bicarbonate and sell it. 
for baking soda, but um, I think that that a commercial activity is is uh, a bit of a dream at the moment. Um, oh, but you know, if it's got uranium in it, you know, glow in the dark baking soda, that, that making is you, right. making you glow in the dark cakes. That'd that be is great. right. Yeah. So look, yeah, the water contamination is from the from this wastewater really is the main concern. There are other concerns though. There is um there is actual gas that's produced. Now we talked about last week that the gas they're extracting really is mostly methane, mm-hmm. which itself, um, especially at low levels, is not considered dangerous to human health. Um, but the look, some of the statements I found about this, they claim that we're boasting about how good this coal seam gas is. Say it is almost pure; it contains ninety five percent methane, and they compare it to the conventional natural gas, which is only ninety percent methane. So huge difference there. So it's so much purer. And what does that what does that mean to the to the actual burning of it? Is it easier to burn or? Well, it, what it means is that, yeah, it means it burns cleaner. But I mean, there's still stuff that there is is other chemicals mm. in this gas as well as what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, look, there have been some health concerns about this. There was uh, in the town of Tara in the Darling Downs in Queensland. Um, anecdotally, there was a very high incidence of headaches and nosebleeds they were reporting there. The Queensland government did a study, but they couldn't really verify that the incidence was higher than kind of general population mm. levels. So it's, it's kind of an unknown there. Um, so in theory, the methane should be safe, but if there's other stuff as well, no one can, can really say for certain. Yeah. Um, there's also... Uh, we're talking how it's supposed to be a cleaner fuel than coal. I mean, coal is pretty nasty. Um, methane is does burn cleaner, though. It'll reduce less carbon dioxide when it's burnt than, um, than things like coal. Um, however, methane itself is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Um, so seen, any escapes of methane could cause problems? Yeah, they call it fugitive emissions. Um, and so basically, um, I can't find really good figures in getting the, the volume of that compared to other sources. I mean, people often talk about methane burped out by cows and that sort of thing being, mm. a, being a concern and how much this rise to it. I, mean, I did find a government study that, set, that they surveyed a, a number of wells and found that basically nearly all of them leak to a certain extent. Um, they claim the leaks are fairly small and within the kind of acceptable industry standards. But really, if you're getting um, much fugitive, fugitive emissions like this, it kind of defeats the purpose of using it as a transition yeah, fuel well, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, um, look, look. I guess the, the upshot of this is it would be better if we could cut straight to the renewables instead of, instead of relying on this. Um, but I suppose there is another concern, thing to think about is that, I mean, all industries have an environmental impact, um, particularly mining Mm-hmm. extractive industries. Um, coal seam gas in particular, it has been a lot of controversy around it. A lot of that is around, it's around the way it's done and lack of trust in the processes, the fact that it's coming onto people's land and that sort of thing. Mm. And so there has been a lot of examination on that, which has, which has you know, led to um, kind of discussion of the dangers and the fears of it. Um, so, but it's, you know, it's really hard to say that it's necessarily you know, in total worse than other forms of mining. Um, I guess the thing is that does you know whether it's better or worse than other forms of mining it still doesn't mean it's good and that would be better if we could um, yeah use other energy sources instead of gas I suppose um, but if it is happening it would be nice if the the regulations are actually enforced with with real penalties involved yeah some actual penalties if people do the wrong thing might might make them do yeah, the right thing yeah. a and bit more often. Especially because they, they, like I said, they go on about how, you know, if they do, if the regulations are there and in place and the government says, you know, we can make sure we can manage this properly, they've got to actually enforce it and make sure that it is done properly. Otherwise, yeah, it's just a lot of hot air. A lot of, lot of hot air, yeah. Do you remember a song from the late 1980s called Don't Worry, Be Happy? 
Bobby McFerrin. Yes, it was an appeal to people to take uh, an optimistic view of the world and forget their troubles. Um, and actually won a Grammy Award for Best Song. I, I remember Robin Williams was in the film clip. He was. Yeah. He was worrying, you know, shuffling around being silly and yeah. being happy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, won the Best Song for the Year in 1988, the Grammys. It's um, a good song. Just goes to show that awards are kind of weird. And also <laughs> that Bobby McFerrin is best remembered for a novelty song, which is a bit of a shame because he's, you know, quite a famous jazz musician. Did he do all the the theme songs for the Cosby Show as well? Uh yeah, yeah. He did a whole bunch. Of, he's he's a, you know does sort of weird vocal kind of style. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but you know he, he probably made a fair bit of money out of it. Mm. Look, the actual premise of the song, which is why I brought it up, is actually quite a good message. And as far as being an optimist goes, it might actually help people to live longer, which is something I'm sure everyone's interested in. Tell me more, Stu. Okay, so according to researchers into the psychology of optimism, there are basically two kinds of optimist. Uh, there's a dispositional optimist who generally believes that good things are going to happen. Okay. Um, and there are people who have an optimistic explanatory style. Now, well, What does that mean? So what that actually means uh, is that when you explain things that happen in the world around you, yep. uh, if you have an optimistic explanatory style, it means that you explain things as being from unfortunate external circumstances. So if something bad, bad happens... Bad things you mean? Yeah, if something yep. bad happens, you go, oh, well, that was this, you know, that was just, you know, bad luck or that was unfortunate event that happened. Okay. Um, rather than internalizing the cause and going, oh, it's all my fault. It's yeah. terrible that this happened. So that um, that toxic wastewater leak was just bad luck. It wasn't um, processes that the company is doing bad or anything like that. Even even saying, well, it's processes the company is doing. We can change that. We can we can yeah. make we can yeah. make changes so that that doesn't happen again. And they they you know they they explain things away and look on the bright side. Um, so the opposite, I guess, is what you would say someone is. Pessimistic, yeah, uh, that's generally considered the opposite opposite of uh, optimism. Um, it, one one of the studies that I reference in a little while is refers to the opposite as being cynical hostility. So hostile, cynical people are the opposite of optimists. Okay. Um, so what has this got to do with health? Uh, so there's been several studies around the world in which people's attitudes have been linked with their health and longevity or their life expectancy. Um, so in a study published in uh, the journal Circulation, which is the journal of the American Heart Association, was found that the most optimistic women in the study were less likely to, de- to develop coronary heart disease and had lower mortality overall. So... Uh, you said women, would they, they're doing just women in this study? Or this, it... this particular study, they looked at women, okay. they looked at black and uh, white women in the study, um, you know, of, of an age where they were likely to develop coronary okay. heart disease. Yeah. Um, and they also found that the most cynical and hostile patients were more likely to develop coronary heart disease and had a higher overall mortality. Okay. So uh, cynical, hostile people, more likely to have heart attacks, um, optimistic people, Less likely to have so a heart attack. Cynical, attacks. hostile. I mean, they're they're actually hostile. They're so well. They this this is on a on a psychological scale. So right. they ask them a series of questions about their yep. their uh, their viewpoint in the world, okay. and sort of graded them on a on a four dimensional scale. So yep. there was cynical, right. hostile was in one corner, and optimistic was up in the other corner, effectively. Okay. Right. Um, 
so uh, another study from 2001 found that among over 1,300 men, mm-hmm. those with an optimistic explanatory style were half as likely to develop coronary heart disease as those who had a more pessimistic view. Okay. So that's, you know, that's quite a big difference in... Uh, in the likelihood of, of developing coronary heart disease. And then there's uh, another study from 1988, okay. uh, which was a study of Harvard University graduates from the years 1942 to 1944. Was this involving Professor Bobby McFerrin? No, it, it wasn't. Um, but it showed that over 35 years, so they studied, you know, surveyed these guys in 1942 to 44, and yep. they were pretty much all guys because that's who went to Harvard University in that era. Okay. Um, and they studied them for 35 years, and they showed that those with a pessimistic outlook had worse health, cu- health outcomes over time, uh, adjusting for their initial health starting point when they were young graduates. So they basically went, how healthy were they as young okay. men, and looked at what happened to them as they grew older, but they found that the actual at their, their attitudes as young graduates had, yep. had a, a strong, uh, well, a strong correlation with their health outcomes, shall we say. Um, and a Dutch study came to similar conclusions in 2004 that showed patients in the age group 65 to 80 years old were 55% more likely to die in the nine-year period of the study if they were pessimistic in okay. their attitude. So you're telling me that this study is a number of studies finding similar kind of results um, in, in a couple of different countries and in both men and women. Yep. Okay. So basically, people who are pessimistic, have poorer health outcomes than people who are optimists. So so why is this? Well, it's basically, it's a classic case of correlation. So there's obviously a connection between the health that people, the the health outcomes, whether they have heart disease or whatever, and the attitude they have. But it could just be that uh, people who are already healthy are inherently more optimistic as a character trait. So you you might be seeing that, Hey, I'm a healthy guy. I've got a healthy attitude. Mm-hmm. You know that that might be all we're observing here. Um, well, and and people with chronic illnesses are probably more likely to be a bit more pessimistic in their outlook because hey, I'm sick all the time. What's, yeah, it you know, hurts. It's, yeah. it's 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 painful and depressing. Well, but also, I guess there are things like I mean, like stress is is known to be associated with um, heart disease in yeah, particular. Absolutely. And you and you, I suppose you would um, naively think that stress is connected to pessimism. Well, um, it could there could be a physiological explanation. So if if you don't react to things by thinking they're bad, mm-hmm. so you don't have a stress response to something bad happening, then your body is less stressed. Obviously, mm-hmm. so if optimism as as an outlook to the world helps you not be stressed, then that means you get lower stress levels, which means okay. you get lower bl- blood pressure, you get lower. Um, stress hormone levels in your body, so things like cortisol, which can be a damaging uh, hormone to get released in your body. So just the fact of being positive and having an optimistic outlook means that you are less stressed, so your body is less stressed, Okay, and you may be better able to deal with health problems as a result. There may even be a genetic component. I mean, this is pure speculation at this point, Um, but if there are genes that give you an optimistic outlook... You know, if there's any kind of component of your personality that might be genetic and some people might get an optimistic gene and some people might get a a pessimistic gene, 
um, that they might be linked with other genes that have other health effects as well. So there's, right. no, you know, without knowing what these exact genes do, and we should be sort of being being starting to see those kind of things. Um, and maybe there's epigenetic levels on that as well, which we don't really know much about. Um, so yeah, it's 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 basically at this stage it's all correlation, but all the correlation seems to be pointing in the same direction that if you have a positive outlook uh, on the world, then you tend to have better health outcomes than if you have a negative attitude to the world around you. Um, and look, if it is possible to change our own personal outlook, uh, there might be some benefit to trying to accentuate the positive, because even if it doesn't mean that we live longer, if there's something else at, at you know, uh, causing these these correlations, then if we if we change our attitude and have a positive outlook, then at least we'll die happy. Okay, that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please do. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or you can find us on Twitter or you can listen to us on the radio once again next week when Stu and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.